0: Have you been to the place where the fireweed grows? The caribou roam and the northern lights glow. Come learn from the people
1: who call this place home. This is the 9360. Welcome to Denali 360. Today I have the pleasure of my guest being Dave Arnold. Dave is a year-round resident of Denali. I think you've been here about 10 years now, Dave, but he's also our program director for Alaska Geographic out of our Murie Science Center. So welcome, Dave. Glad to have you today.
0: Thank you very much, Nova. Appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. So I think one, uh, piece that makes you unique in our community is that you've had a lot of experience with visitors coming into the park. Share a little bit about your experience as a program director or providing information to those visitors, or just a little bit about what you can share about their experience.
0: Yeah, well, as as most people are aware, for a lot of the people that come into the park, it's it's sort of a bucket list experience. So we have a couple of groups, we have family types that come in, And then we have those that are uh, maybe in their retirement years that are looking for that that ultimate experience. And they are so excited to be here that all of the information and everything they they see can be a little bit overwhelming at times. And I think part of the reason for that is going throughout the park and being exposed to uh, a lot of different little uh, discrete pieces of information Uh, makes it difficult for them to actually assemble them together into a coherent whole without some sort of context to do so. So one of the things that we focus on uh, in all of our programming and and what I usually focus on when I interact with any visitor is to provide this bigger picture um, perspective so that uh, through exposure to these discrete pieces of information, they're able to assemble them into a coherent whole. And that skill would then continue to serve them well throughout their experience in Alaska and actually throughout their experiences back home as well.
1: So break that down a little bit for us. We've uh, What kind of pieces... I think, you know, talking a little bit about the bits and pieces that people or visitors or our guests get when they come to Denali, how would you like them to assimilate it in a bigger picture?
0: Yeah, well, I think I think the key is to understand that there's, you know, four general biophysical realms. I wouldn't use that language of them, but actually there's four realms that are interacting to produce the biophysical environments that they're experiencing. So for example, um, the atmosphere is, is probably the controlling feature on human time scales. Uh, then we have uh, the hydrosphere, which is all the water, including the glaciers, and because it's just water in a, in a solid state, and the biosphere, all the life forms, and then what geologists call the lithosphere, uh, some people refer to it as the geosphere, so that's the solid uh, earth crustal material uh, underneath the, the vegetation. And so... The concept is to understand that, that these realms are all interacting together to produce uh, what visitors are experiencing in the park. And the interesting thing about it, and the, and the main point I try to make is that on human time scales, everything they're looking at is directly related to atmospheric variation. So from one year to the next, when visitors come into Denali, um, it looks a little bit different. For example, this summer, after a record uh, snow season this year with 176 inches of, of snow and, a, you know, with the average near about 80, that's certainly going to impact the character of the biophysical environment. It will hydrologically at first, but then it'll affect the, uh, the biomass later on in the season. And obviously, the, the vegetation provides habitat to the, for the wildlife. So it's all sort of connected together. Hemispheric variability dictates variability in the vegetation and variability in the di- vegetation from one year to the next dictates um, the wildlife habitat. In some years, you might find more bears, for example, at Technique. In other years, I might be in other locations. And that's usually in some sort of response to the vegetation, whether that vegetation provides direct food source to the animals like soap berries do for bears or whether it draws in browsers that some of the predators would prey upon the whole thing is connected together and that's the main point we want to make. Um, the secondary point is that it's the atmosphere that is driving all of this which is one of the reasons that we are so focused on climate change because even with a natural interannual variability that is variability from one year into the next year you're going to see significant differences in the landscape. And, you know, climate change is is looking at fairly consistent change or variation over time, decadal variation. Um, And so while from one year to the next, we can kind of understand what we're looking at and, and understand the impacts on the environment with climate change, then it's going to be a more consistent change. So, it's a little bit challenging to deal with. And so, what we want to do is to try to educate visitors uh, to understand how sensitive uh, the biophysical environments are to app- just natural atmospheric variability, let alone climate change, and then help hopefully they'll gain an appreciation then you know, for what we're talking about when, when we discuss climate change and, and the fact that it, it really is linked to everything else they're seeing. Uh, Ultimately, most of them are probably interested in observing wildlife. So for example, the, the density of wildlife or where you find them would be a location or would be locationally dependent upon the character of the weather in the preceding season and probably during the current season.
1: What do you see as, I don't know, maybe some surprising changes that we've seen in previous years?
0: Well, I mean, I think that one of the things that I've noticed a lot lately is um, that the variation in snowfall from one winter to the next seems to be pretty pretty extreme, at least it has been over the last five or six years. We've, we've had seasons not that long ago, just a few years back, where you know, all the snow is pretty much melted by the beginning of April. And then last year, we had a heavier snowfall than average, not tremendously greater than average but still greater than average and then this year obviously with the record snow in it it wouldn't surprise me really to see a, a season next year where maybe we have a um, snowfall that's gone again by early to mid april it's uh, very interesting i think that we're seeing this year in year out variability now that doesn't necessarily mean anything in terms of climate change because climate operates over long time longer time periods than interannual variability But still, I find it very, very interesting, primarily because the environmental response to that uh, is really significant and noticeable if you know what you're looking for throughout the summer season. So really, it's sort of the character of how much water we have from the snowmelt in the uh, late winter through the mid-spring season that dictates what our biophysical environment is going to look like that next summer. And it's been drastically different from one year to the next over the last six or seven years or so.
1: Dave, tell us a little bit when you are um, directing the programs that people are going to be a part of in Denali. What are some of the topics or, or, or grand schemes that you really try to share with people when they're here visiting the park?
0: Yeah, well, in addition to the 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 big picture systems ecology perspective that we try to provide for visitors, we really focus a lot on park science, and so I think that in general people have a relatively poor understanding of what science is first and foremost, and so we spend some time making sure they understand what science really is, and then we we focus on the role of science in Denali National Park and. And we, we focus on this perspective of Denali as a living laboratory. And if you think about a laboratory, the, the mental image of that is some, you know, large building, some sterile room. Maybe you're testing a new fertilizer. You can control light levels, humidity, temperature, all these things. You run controlled experiments. But when you think about the environment of Denali, what is it that you can control for? Well, there's only one thing you can control for, and that's, that's human impact. So that is the control that makes Denali a a laboratory. And the living laboratory is is, is just basically a biophysical system that you can watch, observe, collect data uh, about its operation while it operates. And and so we talk a lot about the individual research projects by park scientists and international scientists that come in throughout the world um, to be able to work in an environment that controls for human impact. And uh, the, the benefits of that are tremendous. It's sort of twofold. Uh, certainly, you know, the, the National Park Service has an obligation to, um, to, to fulfill their, their mission of, of protecting the resources and yet providing access to the park. And in order to do that, you need the best information available. And so you continually have to monitor the biophysical systems to determine whether your your access um, management is impacting protection of the resource or or um, and and on the other hand there is the uh, the what we call basic research perspective where scientists come in from out the, throughout the world and conduct research projects that benefit humankind as a whole so for example there's some physiologists that were looking at at the wood frog and its ability to control its glucose level um, it it can basically increase it a whole order of magnitude very very quickly and obviously the wood frog freezes solid in denial so that's sort of interesting but from the perspective of treating these diseases like diabetes or or, uh, trying to uh, understand cryogenics and and the application of that uh, down the road that's going to benefit humankind as a whole so there's sort of this, this two, two tangent approach to park science. One is in support of the park mission to provide access to the resources while at the same time protecting the resources. And then the other is a basic research that benefits humankind.
1: Talk about some of the other scientific research that happens within the park. I think people would be very fascinating. Uh, I'm already fascinated by you talking about the wood frog and the glucose. And I believe it's the only amphibian in the park. Is that true or false?
0: Yeah, that is true. It's the only amphibian. There are no reptiles. Um, and the wood frog actually has a, uh, I mean, it can exist in habit, habitat all the way down into the southeastern United States. What makes it unique here uh, in the higher latitudes is, is the way that it deals with the winter season by basically freezing solid um, and the heart stops beating and, and uh, you know, the frog thaws out basically in the spring season. It kind of comes back to life and, and that's, that's pretty amazing stuff. There is a lot of research uh, with respect to mammals in the park and with the avian species. There's um, the longest running golden eagle study. It's been conducted uh, in the world in the, in the park. And uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of work on the avian species, on the migratory birds. There's a lot of work on the mammals as well. And, um, for example, with the road closed for the next several years due to the, the, the road uh, problem at, at Polychrome, at Pretty Rocks at Polychrome Pass, that's going to allow the opportunity to actually study some bear behavior um, in an environment with very limited or almost no human access. So obviously, you know, uh, with the park road in place, that traffic clearly impacts wildlife. There's no question about that. There's a question about to what degree do they impact wildlife? Well, with the road closed over a significant section, they can research that now with that control for for no human impact. And it'll be really interesting to, to learn the results of that. That's probably what I'm most excited about over the next couple of years with respect to the scientific research in the park.
1: Talk a little bit about the Murray Science Center. I don't know that a lot of our listeners, they may or may not know it even exists in our park. And I think that's a, uh, you know, re- it's relatively new in my time being here, but um, it, certainly impacts the park in a lot of study and explain to our listeners a little bit about the Murie Science Center and what it does in our national park.
0: Yeah, the the Murie Science and Learning Center is a National Park Service Regional Learning Center. And um, actually, the the, what we call the the MSLC, the Murie Science and Learning Center, um, is is, serves as a winter visitor center Um, It houses the National Park Service education staff, and it also houses the Alaska Geographic education staff. And both the National Park Service and uh, the Alaska Geographic education staff focus primarily on youth programming. Uh, With Alaska Geographic, uh, we also provide some commercial programming. The idea that the revenue for that is fed back into supporting youth programs. And so those are the basic educational operations. Um, The MIRI Science and Learning Center in the summer season, at least uh, this year, will be open from one to three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, Basically uh, catering to families, especially with with youngsters, they're able to come in, the lobby will be set up with a lot of hands-on activities. We have a nice uh, mammal skull collection, Uh, we have a lot of hands-on opportunities to look at for example well whatever you want to look at with microscopes but we have some leaves and some other things and uh, one of our science educators will provide a little 20-minute presentation for the kids sit on the floor with them and share some of the the hands-on materials and talk to them a little bit about about science and about the park and uh, we like to focus quite a bit on the, the concept of, of the predator-prey relationship that's uh, one of our main foci there the idea that basically the vegetation provides food resources for the browsers and then the browsers are actually a food resource for predators and then we talk a little bit about the apex predator so uh, that whole trophic level structure is one of the things that we Discuss with the kids and they're all quite fascinated with dinosaurs and we have the uh, dinosaur display in there and, and lots of opportunities to have dinosaur programming but we still even with the kids try to tie this into this big picture idea that everything is connected and regardless of age that's sort of the message that we send and, and we think that's absolutely crucial in terms of um, you know living in the, in the 21st century.
1: So, Dave, tell us a little bit about the dinosaur background in Denali National Park.
0: Well, clearly throughout a lot of North America, actually, um, you know, there was 100 million years ago or so, there was, uh, you know, a number of dinosaurs around. And uh, with the the KT extinction 66 million years ago, they, they all sort of vanished. But um, in Denali, uh, it's been felt that there were Certainly, it was a a home area for dinosaurs uh, back then, and and, uh, it wasn't really until the early 2000s that the first uh, dinosaur footprint was found in the park, and that was actually discovered quite by accident. There was a uh, a professor from UAF who uh, had a a field course down in Denali um, up around Catler Creek, and and, uh, he was explaining a little bit about the Cantwell Formation, which is a geological sort of sedimentary formation that is very effective at casting fossils. And he explained what the dinosaur footprint might look like. And uh, apparently, quite literally, one of the students pointed over to a rock structure and said, you mean something like this? And it turns out that that was actually the first dinosaur footprint found in Genali. And there's been a number of them found since. Uh, out at Toclat River, there, there's quite a few of them as well. So, um, but that, you know, kids and dinosaurs always, I mean, kids are always attracted to dinosaurs.
1: I happen to love the story about the dinosaur, Dave, and the whole idea UAF for our listeners is University of Fairbanks. And I just love the the visual of the teacher, professor, sitting there describing something in person, and then a student seeing that basically right over his shoulder. So thank you for sharing that story. I always think that's a fantastic story to share with our visitors. Yeah. So Dave, weather is definitely a forte of yours. And please explain to our guests a little bit more clearly on your background with that. But I'd like to kind of address climate in the park and its influence on Denali National Park in general.
0: Sure. Um, yeah, my background uh, in, in in climate. I have a, a Ph.D. in atmospheric science. Uh, my master's degree was in biogeography, which is basically macro scale uh, ecology. Uh, through that program, we did a lot of work on on micro that got me interested in in uh, atmospheric science. So I did my Ph.D. in atmospheric science. Um, the uh, the climate in in Denali. <clears throat> Uh, is basically a subarctic climate as a function of latitude where it's 64 degrees north latitude in Denali roughly, which is about 4,400 linear miles north of the equator and about 172 linear miles south of the Arctic Circle. So uh, the thing about latitude is the further you get away from the, the equator and the tropics, the lower the sun angles. Um, and low sun angles are very inefficient at, at heating. So just to give you a comparative measure, um, this time of year, actually, close to the summer solstice, at, at solar noon, the sun angle is about 50 degrees off the horizon. Uh, in the middle of the continental United States, it would be probably 70 degrees above the horizon, um in in winter it's only about seven degrees above the horizon and that's assuming a flat earth which we don't have around here so basically as, as you're well aware to see the sun in the middle of winter time you have to be looking through the right gaps in the mountains at the right time and then maybe you get to see it for a minute or two and that's about it uh in 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 the middle of the lower 48 states is probably 30 degrees uh sun angle in the, in the winter time so that results in a, in a, in a very uh, cold climate, especially in the winter season. Um, so for example, the afternoon high temperature in July, which is our warmest up month of the year is only 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, during winter, it's 10 degrees below zero for an overnight low. And in the statistics, there's a 20 degree standard deviation, which means it's just as likely to be 30 below Uh, at night in the winter as it is 10 degrees above zero. So it's a pretty harsh environment. The record high temperature here in Denali is only 91 degrees. And there's a lot of places in the lower 48 states where 91 degrees uh, in July would be considered a cool day. But here it's a record. Uh, Our overnight low temperature record is 54 degrees below zero. So if you add the 54 below to the 91 above, you get 145 degree temperature range. So not only does the environment need to be able to adapt to extremely cold temperatures in the winter season and not so warm temperatures in the summer, but there is that really large range of temperatures that it has to, it has to adjust to. And the, 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 the wildlife here and, and the vegetation, for that matter, all have very special adaptations to be able to survive that type of of harsh climate. Um, For, I mean, example, if you just look at the trees, our spruce trees are really quite tall relative to their width, much more so than in lower latitudes. And um, the idea is that because the sun angles are so low that the trees basically perform better when they can expose most of the foliage to the direct sunlight. So the trees tend to be really tall and not all that wide so that all the needles of the conifer can be exposed to the sunlight. It's almost like the the spruce is a sort of uh, an antenna and it's trying to receive the sunlight. And uh, there's lots of uh, mammalian adaptations as well. We had talked about the wood frog, for example, its necessity to freeze solid. Um, Another true hibernator in the park is the Arctic ground squirrel, which I also think is quite fascinating. The the ground squirrel goes into its burrow in uh, the latter part of September, early part of October, and goes into its state of hibernation. And um, over time, its body temperature drops from its nominal, it's in the upper 90s somewhere, it drops down actually below freezing. So it's the only mammal that exists with a body temperature below freezing and it drops down to about 27 degrees Fahrenheit before it starts to shiver. So it begins a shiver cycle and it shivers for, I don't know, a day and a half or so and, and it raises the body temperature up through that shivering and then the shivering uh, cycle ceases and then the body temperature slowly decreases over the next week or two or so back down to that magic 27 degrees Fahrenheit, and it reignites another shiver cycle. So the Arctic Grouse Girl is a true hibernator with a really fascinating physiology. Um, Our grizzly bears are not technically true hibernators. They are more sort of a medium state of of torpor, and they will sometimes in the middle of the winter season, much to the surprise of anybody who encounters one. the, the moose and the caribou, they have a special coats as an adaptation. There is a sort of an underlayer, uh, almost like they're wearing dual coats. So there's an underlayer that's uh, much like a, sort of a fleece substance. And then there's hollow hairs above that. And the hollow hairs provide great insulation. So that helps the animals both stay warm. And it also helps them stay afloat when they swim. Um, the moose, for example, are the largest moose um, uh, that you would find in any, any other uh, national park outside of Alaska. And that's because uh, they need to um, exhibit enough mass to generate uh, adequate body heat to keep them warm to survive the winter. The moose and the caribou and the wolves, they're all active during the winter season. So they all have adaptations to the climate to stay active. So the animals can either, um, they can either go into hibernation uh, or they can somehow adapt to being active in the cold or they can migrate. But mammals aren't going to migrate, however our avian species do. So we have a lot of migratory birds. Um, if you think about species diversity with respect to this harsh climate, it's very, very limiting on the species since Uh, They require so many unique adaptations to survive. So, um, for example, we only have 39 mammalian species here in the park. And if you compare that to the other end of the spectrum, maybe in a tropical rainforest, you might have 400 different mammal species. So we've only got 39. Um, You just think about trees. There's really, uh, and we're not talking about shrubs, but true trees, there's only about six species of trees here. And uh, in, a, in a tropical rainforest, uh, there's probably tens of thousands of species. Uh, the, the exception to the lack of species diversity as a function of climate are, are the avian species, the birds. Uh, we have roughly about 170 bird species in Denali. Uh, only about 20 of them are resident over winter. The rest of them are migratory and they come from all continents uh, across the world in fact the arctic tern comes from antarctica and it's one of the greatest migrators of all um so the real question is you know what what attracts the birds to denali and, and and the answer is that we have a lot of standing water here in this environment that results in the proliferation of huge insect hatches mosquitoes and all kinds of other food resource for the birds and we have You know, pretty much 24 hours of light here. It might not be direct sunlight, but it's uh, diffuse light and clearly uh, enough light to be able to see the food resource. And so, you know, the the migratory birds are going to keep repeating the patterns that proved to be successful in the past. And so, we end up with a lot of migratory birds. So the climate is really interesting in that. Um, It really limits species diversity, but some of the adaptations are what makes the animal so interesting and fascinating to observe. Um, And then again, we have that one interesting exception with with the birds. And that's why so many people come to Denali uh, to observe the migratory birds, uh, since they're coming basically from all continents across the world.
1: Are there any species that have changed over the years that maybe we saw a lot of? I mean, I know that there are species that cycle, like we hear a little bit about the lynx cycle and how it populates based on the snowshoe air. But are there any sort of species that we used to see come here a lot that we don't see as much anymore?
0: No, I wouldn't think so. Um, Those cycles that you speak about um, are... Really, I mean, there's a few mammals that are what we call specialist predators. So the lynx is one. And by a specialist predator, what we mean is that animal depends almost, almost entirely on the snowshoe hare for its food resource. Obviously, uh, now the snowshoe hare population cycle is way down. And so the, the, the lynx population cycle uh, would, would probably be way down as well. Um, I have seen a number of lynx already this spring, which is kind of interesting. It's just a matter of random luck, but uh, they have to subsist um, on other other creatures like voles or or squirrels or whatever they can capture. But they're pretty much specialist predators, so that when the the snowshoe hare uh, population drops, the lynx population usually drops along with it, with it with a slight lag uh, in there. So. Um, other species are more generalist meaning that they could they can uh, substitute uh, food resource one for the other and um, so there's there's a lot of different population cycles but the lynx is the most interesting i think because it's got a pretty consistent periodicity of of about 11 years and and i find that interesting uh, because there's also a Sunspot cycle of 11 years and it's probably just a spurious correlation, but nevertheless, it is a very interesting cycle. I know uh, probably five, six years ago, you, you couldn't in the summer season, you couldn't even, you know, w- walk down the street without seeing four or five, you know, snowshoe hares zipping around. So we're clearly in the lull now and uh, we'll be picking up in the in the next several years. and And as a result, we'll start to see an increase in the lynx population
1: talk a little bit about
0: the sunspot. Well, I just, it's interesting for for when I was a graduate student, there was a lot of research that was published on this 11 year sunspot cycle. And everybody was trying to link that to some other cycle as if it was a predictor of some sort and nobody was ever really able to do it. And that's why it stuck with me. Um, you always remember a figure like 11. So it's like this cycle of 11 years. And, you know, all these different uh, research papers would be trying to look at the relationship between the 11-year sunspot cycle and, and some other aspect of the environment. And it would ultimately prove to be, um, you know, no no statistically significant correlation. And nobody was ever to, able to, to do anything with that. And then when I first... Came to Denali and learned about the, the link cycle, the 11 year cycle. I thought, wow, that's now that's amazing sort of coincidence that fine, here's another cycle that's 11 years. Now, it doesn't mean that there's any chance they're related. It's just that I personally found that really interesting.
1: The weather around the mountain.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I know that um, a lot of people say Denali creates its own weather. Well, um, all-terrain creates its own weather. Um, I think what they're referring to there is the fact that um, Denali is a, a topographic sort of barrier to airflow high up above the surface. So with a 20,000-foot summit, and if you consider the top of the, of the lower part of the atmosphere where all the weather is happening, it's usually about the lo- lowest 35, thirty five to 30,000 feet. So you've got this big, you know, projected projectile feature that's it's, it's up there and the airflow impinges upon it and gets lifted over the top of it. And it will create um, uh, cloud structures called cap clouds quite frequently. And so there there will be a number of days in which, you know, it's pretty much clear everywhere else. And then you know, you're taking a bus down the road and, and you're all jacked up about your ability to see denali because it's a bluebird day. And then your first view of Denali, there's one cloud. It's sitting right on the peak. You can see the rest of the mountain. You just can't see that peak. And you know, there's something very unsatisfying about seeing Denali without able without being able to see the peak. So that that is created by the mountain itself, but um and, and Denali provides some somewhat of a rain shadow when the, when the air flows from the southwest and that rain shadow is sort of over the park entrance. And that, that even happens in the winter, even though we call it a rain shadow, it's also a snow shadow. So sometimes the park entrance doesn't get all that much snow and points further north and south will because of the, that blocking effect of the mountain. But it's the complex terrain of Denali that really has a huge impact on the weather and makes it very, very difficult uh, to forecast. And, for example, a, a typical National Weather Service forecast is, is for a fairly large region. Uh, it's called Alaska Zone 225, and it's, it's much larger than the park itself. Yet there's enough variation in weather that is forced by the topography differences that what's going on on one side of the park is completely different than what's going on on the other side of the park. And so how do you forecast for that? Do you hit the middle ground? Do you hit the best case scenario? Do you hit the worst case scenario? So people um, depend quite a bit on these forecasts to make outdoor plans for activities in Denali. And um, I, I would caution them to not Allow that to be the decision maker in terms of whether they would head up to try to to experience the park. Because there's many many days when the weather has been forecast to be bad when in fact it's been good in the park entrance. So uh, it's just a manifestation. There's only of a, 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 a somewhat limited staff at the at the weather service offices. There's only so much they can do, and they do they're do an outstanding job with what they've got, but they're also forecasting for maritime operations and everything else and and they can't like you know spend hours a day focusing on just one little part of the park to try to get the forecast as uh, the highest quality possible so just have to keep that in mind that there is so much variability because of the complex terrain that what's happening in one part of the park uh, is not necessarily happening in the other part um and that that distance between the two um, divergent types of weather can be a matter of just you know eight, nine, ten miles. Often it's uh, the weather's either sunny or cloudy in the entrance, and then right at the park entrance, and then out at Savage River, it's the opposite. So that's all related to terrain. So it's not just an alley that that sort of creates its own weather. It's the complex topography of the of the of the park that does.
1: I could talk to you hours about weather forecasting because I know you have actually trained people that we see on our news stations at home as far as being weather forecasters. I don't know if you have anything to kind of add generally about that, but I find that a a fascinating training that you have done in your past.
0: Well, I guess it depends on the forecaster in terms of whether I want to take credit for it or not. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, in in the past, I have um, I th- I taught at Mississippi State University, where we basically focused on training weathercasters for television and um, teaching them how to forecast and teaching them enough um, atmospheric physics to be able to pass their uh, broadcasting seal of approval written examinations. And so, a number of them have gone on. There's there's one young lady that was a student of mine in New York. Uh, New York City that has won a couple of uh, of Emmys for her work so I had nothing to do with that other than I, I, I taught her how to forecast but I'm sure the Emmys were not related to her forecasting skills or on-air presence um, and a number of my students have gone on to work for the National Weather Service um, some of them with the National uh, or the, the Storm Prediction Center, Norman, Oklahoma so if you're interested in like Severe weather in the continental 48 states, we want to know where the forecasts come from for those tornadic outbreaks. They come from the Storm Prediction Center, and a few of my students work there. And actually, I've got a student that works here in Alaska in the Aviation uh, Weather Center in Anchorage that has been there for uh, probably 15, 20 years now, so... Yeah, that's a sort of a blast from the past, but uh, some of them are still around and and a lot of them have been pretty successful. So I, I do keep up with them and, and we are able to communicate every once in a while.
1: Earthquakes are something we certainly experience in Alaska.
0: Yeah, no question about that. Um, yeah, the Denali fault system is actually pretty close, but it doesn't take, uh, you know, an event on the Denali fault to feel it here in Denali for sure. Um but, yeah, I mean, probably if you think about the Denali Fault, um, thinking the last truly significant earthquake was back in the early 2000s. I think it was a 7.9 on the Richter scale and only about 25 miles to the east southeast of the park. Um, so that that is uh, very much a manifestation of the fact that, uh, Pieces of the Earth's crust are moving around, and they are converging in the Alaskan region. It's why we have the Aleutian Island volcanoes. It's 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 why we have earthquakes here. Um, the uh, large piece of crust known as the Pacific Plate is moving, sort of toward the northwest, and 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 basically being kind of shoved underneath the North American continental plate. We call that subduction, and. That creates a, an island chain of volcanoes, which is the Aleutian Islands. And then some of that force of that motion is translated all the way up here. And it's causing little smaller pieces of the Earth's crust to continue to push northward um, in the direction of interior Alaska. And as a result, um, we have the Alaska Range, which has grown over the last six million years Um at a rate of about a half a millimeter per year which is pretty significant and that was able to push a large or several large chunks of granite well above our current surface now and so those mountains are still developing the alaska range is still being pushed upward so we consider that a young mountain range um i mean it's six million old years old it doesn't sound that young but in uh, geologic terms, we refer to young mountains as those that the uplift of the mountain is at a greater rate than the weathering and erosion of that mountain. So for example, the Appalachian Mountains, are the, the dominant process there is weathering and erosion. It's not being lifted up really to any great degree, but it's certainly being worn down. And here in the Alaska Range, it's being lifted up much faster than it can be worn down. So that is a young mountain range. And a manifestation of that is that you're gonna have earthquakes. Uh, so this is a very seismically active area. And I, there's likely faults that, local faults, we will discover you know, once we experience an earthquake from them. Uh, we don't know exactly where they all are.
1: Last season, we had a lot of movement of the Muldrow Glacier.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, the is an interesting situation. There, there's not that many glaciers throughout the world that will surge like that. That one surges, in, I think it's somewhere around 60 year with 60 year periodicity. Um, but yeah, that that was a, a sort of a textbook surge, and um, I think it was really fortunate that the park road held up long enough. That uh, some visitors were able to get out to the Eielson Visitor Center or out toward Wonder Lake and be able to actually see that the Muldrow um, with that surge, because normal in a normal year from Eielson Visitor Center, it's covered with so much debris. You know, most of the visitors won't even understand that's a glacier. You point it out to them, but they don't. If they can't, but doesn't look like turquoise ice to them, they don't see it as a glacier. So there's a lot of debris on the Muldrow and then when it surged it sort of buckled up a little bit and it it showed its profile with that beautiful turquoise ice and fortunately we we got some visitors out there until the road was shut down in august to be able to see that because you know my fear is a couple more years from now when the road opens back up and we get people out there there'll be enough dust that is settled on the on the newly exposed ice that it'll look the way that it has in the past um That's truly a historic event to be able to see that, but um, it has surged in the past as well. And uh, it probably will in the future.
1: What else would you like to talk about, Dave, that we haven't covered so far? It's certainly been extremely enlightening in many scientific aspects that you've covered today, but is there something else that you'd kind of like to share with the listeners? Uh, Maybe just the character of the park, and this is kind of
0: important to me. Most visitors are aware of the the front country. It's the location of the Denali Visitor Center, the Murray Science and Learning Lab, uh, the Riley Creek Campgrounds, the Mercantile Post Office. And there's a lot of organized trails, uh, formal trails in the front country. But I think a, a lot of folks are not completely aware of our back country. In fact, the majority of the park is in the wilderness area. And it is such an ex- exceptional experience to be able to get out into that wilderness area. And I, w- I would highly recommend those that come visit it, um, uh, go out into that area after receiving enough background information from the National Park Service. Maybe they're going to do a overnight backpack obtain the wilderness permitting from the national park service they provide some training but even if you're just going to go a few miles off the road in that trailless backcountry area it is quite an experience and i think it's 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 a an eye-opening experience uh, personally uh, maybe psychologically certainly emotionally um, to be out in an area where if you you know turn around 360 degrees you see no human development whatsoever and all you hear are natural sounds. It's a it's a very unique sort of experience and I think it's an attribute of the park that uh, a majority of visitors uh, have not sampled and, and may not even be completely aware of.
1: If you could give one piece of advice to a visitor or you know somebody traveling through to Denali uh, and it's one important piece of information that you kind of wish that they knew or that they followed or, you know, I mean, you've given them a a wealth of information today. What would that be?
0: I I think it it is that, you know, I think we all operate under the assumption that all of our national parks will be here in perpetuity, and that's not necessarily the case. The National Park system in the na- each individual national park is established by congressional act and they could also be lost by a congressional act and i think what i would like to leave visitors with is i mean if you really appreciate these national parks you need to have your voice heard and there's a number of ways you can do it um certainly there are non-profit organizations that address this but at a minimum i would uh I would write my congressional delegate uh, a simple two sentence email saying, I would appreciate your uh, support of our our national parks. Thank you very much. Um, Because, you know, if we don't make our voice heard on this, there's always the danger that somewhere down the road uh, we could lose some of these these beautiful public lands. And uh, there's been cases in the fairly recent past where this has occurred. So I think that we should not be taking Uh, any of these parks for granted
1: perfect note to end on thank you dave arnold for being my guest today
0: thank you very much nova denali
1: 360 is a production of denali 360 llc interviews are edited by josiah robinson podcast artwork designed by daniel karapedian Theme song written and recorded by Jonathan and Brooke East. Special content and sponsorship recorded by James Rio. I am your host, Nova Cunningham. For more information on Denali Park, Alaska, go to Denali360.com.